track My best friend's in a gun rack I'm a low life I owe everybody money I think racist jokes are funny I'm a low life I got a dirty mind A gutter mouth I'm making time I'm going out with your wife Cause I'm a low What's up, motherfuckers? Welcome to a, another episode of the Low Life Motherfucking Chopper Podcast. Happy Friday and Merry fucking Christmas to all you low lifes. Thank you for another year of listening to the Low Life Chopper Podcast. We're stoked to have you guys tuning in on this fine Friday. Hope everybody had a good holiday. I know we did. And now we got a great interview. Fuck! A great interview! <laughs> For you motherfuckers. But first, we're going to kick this one off the way we always do, even on Christmas, with these motherfucking sponsors. Up first, we got the one, the only, Ironhead Supply Co. If you guys are not hit to this yet, this is this month's giveaway sponsor. You're getting a one-of-a-kind Twisted Steel Sissy Bar. Made to order, so it will be custom fit to your fucking bike. Whether it's a swing arm, a chopper, a bobber, a fucking tricycle, <laughs> like in separate categories, whatever you want, <laughs> whatever you want. But make sure you are following Ironhead Supply Co. on Instagram. Do it now. Don't wait till you forget. Yes, you do not want to forget. The drawing is next week. Next week we'll go live. We'll pick the winner. You better be following them. Um, if you are not yet, you can become a Patreon member. How do they do that, Grace? They head on over to patreon.com slash lowlifechopperpodcast and click on that giveaway level supporter section. And that's going to get you entered in to the drawing that we do every month. This month, like he said, Ironhead Supply Co. Custom made sissy bar. Next month, it'll be something else. Your chances to win are extremely high. And it also helps to support the show. As we mentioned before, all the proceeds from the show sitting in an account. And they are being saved for our big fucking chopper bash this summer. So that's where all that money's going to. Yes. Good times. Next up, we got the man, the Rick, the legend. Chicken motherfucking Rick. Chicken fried Rick, if you don't know him. Chicken fried choppers, aka chopshit.com. Um, your one-stop shop for all your stickers, pins, patches, hoodies, and goodies. Yes. Uh, the man who supports all the local craftsmen. Uh, so I just went and checked out chopshit.com, the actual website. Haven't been on there in a fucking while. Dude, that website is crispy. Super professional. Dude. <laughs> Holy fuck. Chicken Rick, huge shout out. That shit is dope. Uh, if you guys want to check Oh, if you want to catch Chicken Rick, he'll be at Cheat Throws, New Jersey, along with your fine man right here. That's it. February 1st, Jersey. Hit him up. He will have all the good shit there at the show. And last but not least, we got ChopCult.com. Lisa over at ChopCult.com. She's been holding it down for the Chop community for the longest time, as you're about to hear some evidence of in this interview. You. That is the one-stop shop for communication with the chopper community 
I had, this is the first time I had heard like traveling, being far away, reaching out to Chop Colt and having yeah. them put the fucking beacon out there. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know how we've never said it before. Cause I, yeah, you see it a million times. Right, on you Instagram always see it on and, stories. Yeah. Anybody in this area that can help with yeah. this situation, and she never is even like thought of that aspect. It's the hub. It. You know? Yeah. So, chopcult.com. Head on over there. Check out the classifieds. Pick up some stuff. Make a build thread. Check out the Brolidex. Read the blog. All kinds of cool shit. Support those that support you. And Chopcult supports fucking everybody. And bonus shout out to motherfucking Dwayne. That's right. Dwayne, the leather crafter, the man, the myth, the legend. Dwayne the Rock Johnson. <laughs> Cooking up the dopest shit made out of fucking cow hides. Love it. Figure it out, motherfuckers. Go find him. Dwayne Ballard. Yeah. And with that, we're going to roll into these fucking shout-outs. Super light week. I know, yeah. Super light week. We both have one shout-out each. That's right. Well, we're recording this on Thursday night. You're about to... We're dropping this the minute we hit the end button, <laughs> For basically. Sure. It's crazy. You guys know with the holidays, we don't want to go and do any dark weeks, so we always want to be able to bring you an episode, but we've been, we've all been hibernating. That's how it goes during the holidays. So, I want to give a quick shout-out here to Jim Morgan X. Jim Morgan X reached out after last week's episode when I told you guys that I got the shittiest news at that DOT medical exam about these fucking diabetes. And he reached out with a bunch of information that I had no fucking idea about. So, it was awesome to hear from somebody that has it and has that shit under control about all the shit I got to do. So, I appreciate you, Jim Morgan X. Who do you got? Um, so, I always have, like, the same shots. Like, shout out to Ironhead Supply Co. Um, been going back and forth with him on the Sissy Bar design for my Greasy Dozen build. Uh, shout out to Greasy Dozen. Shout out to Old Bike Barn, Lowbrow Customs, uh, Chop Colt, um, Built Well. Those are all the guys we've gotten... Uh, help with the sponsorship so far yep. so I appreciate everybody that has a hand in that um, but my shout out this week goes out to Chopper Bob and fucking Badfish Customs for letting me ask a million and one questions oh yeah about um, lathes and what to look for and like what I need to know before I pull a trigger on this thing and um, I know from experience, sometimes it gets aggravating as fuck. Just like getting caught up on one subject with somebody. Like, it's hard to stay, like, as enthused as somebody else is about it. So, I'm sure it wasn't easy for these guys to fucking sit and talk to me <laughs> literally the entire fucking day. Um, but I appreciate both you guys. And uh, with the knowledge that they gave me, I fucking pulled the trigger and bought that Logan 210 lady. So, super fucking pumped about that. And. Just happy I got some solid fucking knowledgeable homies <laughs> to help me out in circumstances like that. No doubt. So, like we said, it's been a light week. Super I think light. those are the only two shout-outs we got, right? Yeah. And I'm going to just throw it out here now. That way it's not like a surprise. We're not doing kicks in the dick this week. That's right. Um, here's what happened is we had a great fucking interview that you're about to fucking hear. We ran that shit for fucking two hours with a fellow Greasy Dozen fucking builder. And it's late. It's fucking 1030 at night right now. We got to get this episode we out. We got to dub this shit down and fucking get it on the air. So, sorry guys, you get no kicks in the dick. Now you all have a kick in the dick for next week. There you so, go. So, with that, we're rolling into this motherfucking interview with Nigel. 
All right, guys. So we are sitting down with Nigel, a.k.a. Nigel's Creations on Instagram. Greasy Dozen invited builder this year. How's it going, man? It's going fantastic. Thanks Dude, for having me, guys. Of course. This was kind of meant to be the way that this all happened. Yeah. So you're in Denver, right? Yep. Denver, Colorado. But uh, originally from right here uh, in New Hampshire, not too far down the road in Hudson. So Yeah, one town away. Yeah. Just so happened to be home visiting family. Yep. And we got a chance to sit down with you in person, which is so much better than doing it over the phone. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And that's kind of why I... I reached out because I, you know, I know you guys talk to people all over the country, but I was like, if I'm going to be 15 minutes down the road, you know, and we're Loctites in the Greasy Dozen as well, I was like, let's get together and talk about Ohio for Hell a little yeah. bit. It is going to be such a great time. Now, you're building a Buell for this, right? Yep. Yeah. Buell, uh, a Lightning started out as a... Um, like an adventure bike kind of a thing or, uh, you know, put bags on the side of it and your wife on the back and cruise around. Oh, I didn't even know they did bags. Yeah. That's actually when I started parting it out. That's the only thing anybody wanted was the dual bags. <laughs> I was like, sorry, they're gone probably because they already got sold off, but uh, hot ticket item. Yeah. yeah. Is that like integral to the, to the bike or is it just like a regular set just, of Harley bags? Kind of like a regular set of Harley bags or something off of like a Ducati. But, gotcha. uh, yeah, that's what it looked like when it started. But first day I bought it, I stripped that right the Took fuck right down. down. Yeah. I, was like, <laughs> I can't even imagine what it would look like with the bags on. I'm going to have to Google it now. Yeah. It, they're, I mean, they're, they're ugly bikes. They really are. But, <laughs> but underneath, you know, what it's, what's on the inside that matters, a, a hopped up Sportster engine and a, a pretty cool chromoly tube frame. So yeah, the frames I did not realize were as intricate as they are. It's not a yeah. basic Harley frame. Yeah, they're, um, I mean, Eric Buell um, always really envied Ducati. Um, if you look at the history of Buell, even before he was involved with um, with Harley, uh, he was basically trying to emulate them. And so when Buell started with Harley, that's what he was trying to do is compete with specific bikes from Ducati. And so he did those um, frames where, you know, the engine's hanging down below, the engine's part of the right, frame, right. Um, not a single backbone, which that's Harley's bread and butter. I mean, even when they went, Harley went to the, the square backbone, you know, there was an uproar yeah. <laughs> over that. So well, as we Buell, see with all the, the chopper guys, you know, they want to sit that tank and all the buns yep. are like intended to sit on some radius. Yeah. Yeah, and, and it just looks ugly, you know, it looks like scaffolding, you know, yeah. so for a chopper, those, the new frames are, take a little bit of work, but yeah, the Buell is, it's an interesting bike. It's been fun to kind of get underneath its skirt and start playing around with it. Um, Definitely. How, so how did this bike come into your life? Um, so when I moved out to Colorado, um, just on a whim, basically with a couple suitcases, my dog and my truck, I had no idea what I was doing out there. I was just looking for something more important than what I was doing back here and, uh, walked into a custom Harley shop, just looking to maybe do like desk work kind of a thing. I wasn't really sure. looking to get back into being a uh, mechanic or fabricator. And he basically persuaded me to come work in the shop and he'd show me all the things on the Harleys and everything. And was paying me, you know, what a guy with no tools gets paid, you know, it wasn't <laughs> like I was expecting to be making a million dollars sitting around, you know, using other people's tools, but sure. I, he had a bike in the back that, uh, 
it had been sitting there forever and I had not a pot to piss in. I was living downtown Denver. So city living, working as right. a mechanic doesn't always line up. Um, Expensive in Denver? It's cheaper than here, but it's not cheap. Um, sure. It's not Texas cheap. So yeah, it was expensive to live downtown, um, trying to get on my feet and everything. I had no business even trying to buy any bike. Right. And basically had this Buell that was sitting there. And um, I basically told him, I'm like, I've got a grand. That's yeah. the, I can't offer anything more than that. And he agreed. I think uh, my boss, Mike, saw that I was really eager to start cutting something apart because my cafe racer was still back east. And so we came to an agreement on it and he let me put it up on a rack, start tearing it apart. That's um, awesome. So that's how it started. I never really, I don't remember when the intention for turning it into a tracker came about, but uh, I definitely got pretty far away from the build over the summer. Um, as you do, it's hard it to, happens. yeah. And the riding out in Colorado is amazing. So got distracted for a while. And so that's how the bike came into my life. And since I couldn't afford to buy any parts, I had just been making stuff for it here and there. And you've been making some cool shit for that thing. Yeah. I was taking a look through the, the Instagram feed between the, the, the dog bone yep. on the back, uh, yeah. the chromoly, the swing arm. Yep. Yeah. Take I mean, us through some, some of these little things, like how you, yeah, so what your vision was and how you laid them out. Yeah, so a lot of it um, stems from I grew up with a, a racing family. Um, there's kind of this ideal, you know, make things lighter, make things faster. And I love um, the first thing that I, I found actually in the basement of the shop was this twin throat Solex Makuni carburetor. And I was mm. like, oh shit, that's pretty damn cool. And it was a really small one. Um, it had a, what looked like a shovel head manifold on the back of it. And Asked Mike what he wanted for, and he was like, 50 bucks. And I was like, sure, I'll take this. And I'm like, all right, now I got a twin throat carburetor, and there's no twin throat manifolds for Sportster motors. Right. So I ended up um, kind of using the back half of an old cast Sportster manifold, two pieces of aluminum tube that I ended up having to bend to fit in that small area. And I had to put a piece of plate down the middle to separate both throats for the manifold, and then uh, you know, handmade flange for it to get, you know, and it took a long time, um, fitting everything up and, you know, we don't have a lot of these really nice, um, fabrication tools. It's an old school shop. You do stuff by hand. So everything was having to be bent by hand, eyeballing angles, yeah. um, fitting stuff <laughs> with cardboard. And so, um, we know that struggle. Oh yeah. And I mean, that's, that's the fun way to do it. I don't want to, you know, go pay somebody with a, a CNC to cut everything out. And all I do is weld it together. I mean, that's, that's no fun. Right. Um, so yeah, there's the twin throw. I want to swear at something. I want to yeah, get exactly. That's kind of, yeah, exactly. <laughs> the trial and error of getting things to fit. And you can also tell when you look at something, I mean, those, those old choppers that were built in the sixties and seventies and even race cars in the sixties and seventies were hand built. You went and looked at them. You can see that there was guys who were hammering on this and tweaking that by hand and, that's the way I really love building stuff. Um, and so, you know, in the twin throat, um, carburetor, you know, both the manifold is half and half it's front and rear. Um, and that's not a common thing done on a lot of Harleys. And then, um, yeah, the swing arm was kind of a, I had somebody ask me why the swing arm on this bike splits in half, you know, it's a left and right half. And back when I first designed it, I think there was a reason, but I think it got lost in the, because I can, 
kind of thing. <laughs> um, that was definitely the biggest piece is I'm like, you know, I've never seen a swing arm that splits in half and there's a good right. reason for it. You know, that's something that needs to be strong. Um, but yeah, the swing arm is kind of a, looks like an old MX, uh, mono shock swing arm. That's definitely really common in the scrambler cafe tracker scene. Right. Um, but yeah, everything on it is painfully hand built. And I say that loathing myself because it's taken so long to make, um, you know, axle slots out of cutting a one inch tube in half and then putting plates between it. And, you know, that's four welds per slot and then you get to grind right. them down and, you know, make everything parallel and same with where the shock mounts, it's all raw stock that's been cut and shaped, drilled, and then lined up. And it's just this tedious process. I got into it and I was like, man, just buying something looks really nice right, right. about now. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah. And then, um, some friends of mine uh, that you guys have had on the show, uh, Kevin and Cody over at Keebler customs and horseshoe customs, um, have an amazing fabrication shop over there and they have a tubing bender. So I was able to get the tubes bent nice and perfect. That's um, awesome. And that finished it off. And that was the huge piece. And that just came together probably two weeks ago. I finally got oh, the nice. bike looking like a motorcycle again. And then, yeah, everything else on this bike is, um, it's going to have a handmade tank. Um, the oil tanks on it sit above the engine underneath the fuel tank. And just everything on it besides like the seat, oh, that's gonna the be handlebars. Above the... Yeah, if you look in the pictures, it's kind of hard to see, but right above the front cylinder, kind of underneath the frame is a left and right oil tank. Um, oh, shit. So, and that was another because I can, but there's this kind of part of the frame that's open and looking in there. The fuel tank usually covers it. And I was like, you know, it'd be pretty cool to be able to kind of see something there with the tank above it. Um, plus, you know, the airflow of up on top of the bike is pretty good. It helped cool the oil. Right. And so there's just a lot of really convoluted ideas that I've had with this bike that I've now executed. So they've got to keep moving forward with them. Right. But, um, yeah, cause they put the oil tank underneath the seat and because the swing arm is, or the shock is underneath the bike, all of that stuff was right kind of behind the engine. And so to do a mono shock in a, the so standard. this was not mono shock before. It was, but it was underneath kind of like a soft tail. Oh, I see. So, so yeah. And so I wanted this bike to have a decent amount of ground clearance. It kind of started the idea that in Colorado, there's a lot of dirt roads. So having a really low bike doesn't work. You know, you might yeah. have to pull off and into a ditch to turn around or something like that. And if you're on like a dresser or, you know, even like a Dyna out there, it can yeah, be a, tough a bit treacherous. Well, that would, that would explain why, uh, those guys, uh, Cody and Kevin, the bike they brought to yep. Gracie Dozen last year yeah, was absolutely. Like super fucking fun bike. Oh, yeah. And that's the kind of stuff you want in Colorado because there's a bunch of mountain roads. And some of them you'll be on and there'll be pavement and then all of a sudden they're dirt. Yeah. You know, and it's one of those you don't want to turn around. And so those kind of bikes, I think, like they built. And I've talked with Kevin at length about it a lot that, you know, as much fun as, uh, you know, the standard Harley style bikes are out there having a a really good adventure bike just totally opens up a different type of riding. Um, and so, yeah, in Colorado, you got to either have a bike that can change what it does, or you've got to have a lot of different bikes. Yeah. Uh, cause the riding is different all over. Um, and so that was like the Buell was kind of the idea, I guess in the beginning was to have a bike that was fun to ride in Colorado. Right. And then, uh, once getting invited into the greasy dozen kind of narrowed that image to be something that was a little more familiar um, 
and so let's help. back up to you entering. Yeah. So to you entering. So where, where was this bike sitting when you decided? I got you know I should jump into the greasy dozen this think, year. I think it was just moving around the shop. It was just like a satellite, <laughs> you know. Depending on where I was working, the bike moved to the opposite side. Because um, <laughs> so when I live downtown, I don't have a garage, and I'm not going to leave it outside. So right. uh, my boss was kind enough to let me keep it in the shop, but couldn't keep it on a rack, especially if I wasn't working right. on it time and time. Um, so it would just kind of move around the shop, and so I couldn't do anything to it too major because I. If I pulled the swing arm off, um, I couldn't move it. it. And so it was very limiting as far as what I could get done on the bike. And so it would just basically move from one shop to the other in this room over there. And so, um, yeah, when I entered, it was kind of a panic because, you know, as everybody started like working on their bikes and that was what they wanted you to do. They wanted to see who was hungry and who's going to work on their stuff. And I was like, crap, I'm like, we're fucking busy and like right. i need to get this up on a rack and like work on it and whatnot and so it was just kind of moving around all over the place you know down on my hands and knees just like any would anyone would be at their home shop yep um and so yeah it was just kind of moving around and i was trying to get shit done on it in a very small amount of time because i can't be at the shop after hours I was going to say, because you work, so you're working full time. And then this yep. is just like in the after hours, they'll let you stay. Yep. Yeah. One of the employees away. there, he stays late and works on his own personal stuff. Um, he's uh, the nephew of the owner. And so um, he'll stay late. And then basically, as long as he's there, I can be there as well. And so I'm like hustling through stuff. And usually it's no more than two hours. So it's definitely a challenge. Yeah. You guys, that's a tight window. Yeah. To try to fatigued already. From yeah, the exactly. And try to get yourself in that, that flow, um, that when you're fabricating stuff, it's not 15 minute jobs. It's, you know, usually it's like two hours worth of work and you kind of get to get that momentum up. Um, right. so that's definitely, you know, the huge advantage of having a professional shop kind of at my disposal is massive. But the challenge of only having two hours really to do a lot of the major work um, definitely keeps this a very humble project as far as what definitely. I can get done kind right. of thing. Yeah, and, and you're working by yourself too, I'm assuming. Yeah. So you just got um, your own two hands. You got the whole shop at, at your disposal. but uh, Yeah, exactly. It's um, limited to stuff yeah, you can yeah, do on your own. Right. It's not a, a full, like a shop, typically you divide the work among different people to get things done in a quick amount of time. And even with that, you know, six months is a short window to get anything done. Right. Um, so yeah, being on my own, um, you know, I definitely, uh, there's guys out there who have already been a big help, um, like Kevin and Cody, and there's other friends out there who have helped in smaller ways and in the future are going to be helping in bigger ways. Uh, my friend Enrique is the one who took some of those better pictures of me working on it. And he kind of wants to make a story of it but um yeah there's definitely a lot of support out there but at the same time it's you know i'm putting the burden of it on my own two shoulders right <laughs> definitely so when you got picked mm -hmm. what was going through your mind because uh, at that point it had been sitting around the shop and then it's like yeah, it's all real i think i definitely didn't think i was gonna get in because my bike did not look you couldn't it you couldn't see what it was going to be, you know, it was right. just a, basically a stripped down Buell. And there was a couple of things that you could say, yeah, that's cool. But you know, what is it really going to look like? Is this something worth putting in? I've only really built one other custom bike, um, that had some, you know, local success out at Laconia. So it wasn't like there was much 
to say. So when they announced the um, builders, I remember like all the memes that were going around from people who had entered, you know, just sitting there at Thanksgiving <laughs> table, just like waiting oh, and waiting. Yeah. All and the waiting. skeletons at the table. Just yeah. <laughs> just like, man, like, am I in? Am I not? And it was kind of like, I just want to. It was. And it was so weird because like, I didn't really think I was going to get in. But I was like, I kind of wanted them to announce it so I'd stop wondering. Yeah. And then I remember when I saw my name, and it was like the last title card too. So I was tagged in it, but I wasn't sure if it was because thanks to all the entrants. So it wasn't until I oh, slid to I the see. last title card on Instagram and I saw my name there. And it was like this. It was First, it was exciting. It was like, this is awesome. Like I get to build a bike for something, not just myself. And then the stress just started like totally pouring down. It was like, all right, that's, uh, that's six months, but Christmas is coming up. So holy shit, this is a five month build. And it was like, I bit off way more than I can yeah. chew. And I was like, holy crap. It just like hit like a ton of bricks. like 3 a.m. that night. Yeah. It was like, holy fuck. Yep. I got three kids. Yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> oh yeah. I can't then I'm like one of the few like single younger builders who like if I gotta stay up till four AM and all that, like I'm still gonna recover pretty well. Like sure. I have zero responsibilities besides Ooh. my dog. So if I drain my bank account, I'm not gonna lose my house. <laughs> and there's guys, you know, like you said, you've got three kids, like you can't just be like, I'll see you in six months, yeah. you know. There's a well, lot that was more. The thing. So me and my wife, like we talked about it beforehand and i'm like if this happens i just need you to like let me know before it gets to that point <laughs> you know what i mean yeah so it's like i've been good about those like i work until 7 p.m and then come home put the whole family to bed by like 9 30 and then i'll go in the shop until like yeah. 12 1 whatever the fuck it is but i know exactly i had all the same things i was like super excited i got picked and i was like fuck yep this is going to be tough. Yeah, exactly. And it was also like, you know, I mean, I think Ohio, Columbus has got to be almost like equally far from here as it is from where I am in Denver. I think it's, I know it's a day's drive. Yeah. Uh, what is it? 14 hours or something? Yeah. Cause when I drove like across, 12 yeah, it's, ish. it's a solid day's drive, you know, and it's Plus one of the, whatever, however many tickets you get pulled over for. <laughs> so yeah. fucking Ohio. Yeah, exactly. So it was like, okay, I got into a show, but there's also the logistics of getting out there. And that right. changes your time frame too, because yeah. you know, if you're just going up the street or, you know, you're going to Laconia, if you have a problem, you know, your shops down the street, you can have somebody run you apart that, you know, locally, yeah. you know, if you're halfway to Columbus and you know, you have a problem with the trailer, you have a problem with the bike or you have a problem with your vehicle. Like you're at the, you know, you're on Instagram, like chop Colt's one of the best, absolute best resources on Instagram Seriously. when shit hits the fan. Yeah. Like you tag them That's in a, a post. Point. They, the, Blast it'll it go everywhere. Yeah, and that shit goes viral. Quick. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and that's, it's amazing about the community, but it definitely changes the dynamic of getting a build done and doing it so that it, it works. So it, what's your plan for tripping out there? Cause I'm still like, I'm trailering. I'm so torn. <laughs> <I have> a, <laughs> Just right away. Uh, oh, I'm absolutely. Trailering. I've got a, a KTM MX seat on that thing. I'm trailering. Yeah. Like, <laughs> like there's no way. way. I'm like, it would be dope to, cause like so many people, I think like our whole, like, circle up here yeah. is going yep but i'm like look i think i'm just gonna ride by myself i just feel like i don't know like I, you know what i mean after all that work just like take that long ride by yeah yourself, leave on like a wednesday yep take my time getting out there but 
I don't know, man. I'm like, I'm nervous because, like you said, it's not like I'm going down the road. I'm going like yeah. 900 miles yep. on a bike that I'm probably finishing the night before. Exactly, and that's <laughs> I've talked with a lot of friends who have been doing personal builds, you know, smaller ones. And I had a friend who had me come over, and there was a, a run up to the mountains. And he, I mean, the amount of things he needed to get on it, he wanted to take it the next day. And I was like, man, I'm like, I've built a lot of stuff back when I used to restore cars and other things. It doesn't go right the first five times. You know, you've got to weed out everything. So it's like to build something and then take it on the road, it's impossible, really. You know, and so that's why I was like, I'm not going to build something that's going to be a jump on the highway bike you know the gear i don't even know what the gear ratios really work out to in this bike um but i want it to be a fun bike so to make it you know like have what most big harleys have for gear ratios that and on the back roads sometimes isn't too fun and that the riding position just being stark straight up right no backrest no wind protection you know having just a tiny bike between your legs when the wind blows you blow with Mm -hmm. it and guys who don't do long long rides on not long riding bikes don't quite get what that's like yeah Um, i almost took an xr 650 from colorado to san diego only because i was like it's a shitty bike to do that on but it's a couch i was like that's the only thing i've got going for it and then i thought about it and i'm like fuck that that's just gonna suck yeah you know it's fun to talk about after but I can definitely be a bitch about riding. Yeah. I'm like, yeah, the stories are cool, but at the time, it fucking blows. I like, a couple of our buddies we ride with, like, got, like, dinos and, like, sports with suspension. Mm-hmm. And then I'm on a rigid sports, so he's on a rigid XS. Yep. And they're like, why are you guys doing 60 on the highway? Because yeah, your and kidneys like, are in your throat. Like, I'm not sure it does 70. <laughs> Yeah. I think 60's the top. Yeah, I think. I yeah, it doesn't go much more than that. Have to yeah. ride a rigid bike before they can talk shit about it. Oh yeah, bike. it's a totally different. Um, we actually have a customer of the shop who he has us build him some pretty cool bikes, but he usually a couple of them are uh, they're soft tails. Yeah. And instead of doing a hard tail kit on him, he does hard struts, and we set it at you know whatever mm. low, and then he does um, basically a metal pan seat with some pretty hard padding, like really tight leather to it, hard mounted to the frame. And I took one of, yeah, I took one of his bikes out and I remember it was one of those, like I had only been riding, um, you know, just typical dressers and dinas on the test ride. And so I wasn't really thinking about where I was in the road and there was a manhole cover that came up. And I remember seeing it, the same panic that you have when a car pulls out in front of you. Yeah. And I just hit it and it was just like, I felt like my organs hit my teeth and it was just like, Oh man, like this bike looks cool as fuck, but Jesus, you cannot, I mean, it's a totally different thing. Right. Uh, it beats the crap out of you. I mean, they're fun. I've no been sprung on seat. No sprung seat. See, this is where uh, I, I feel like no you guys are just thing. missing the, the golden middle ground. Seats. Oh yeah, if you've got a really padded seat. seat or a good sprung seat, um, even like the old uh, like UL EL frames with the pogo seats. So the those pogo are the seats, most comfortable yeah, bikes on the planet. Super comfortable. But those those I agree are those are enormous. 
So it's hard to it's hard to look past them. But it's but just a mobile couch. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> but the XS, dude, I don't like. I hit fucking all kinds of shit. The sprung seat you don't feel it. Me, though, it just like fucks up that line. Just mount it low, mount it low, yeah. keep it swooping. I think the big part of it is like if you do a rigid seat, you got to have like that super drop and then like a nice back rest. This is true. Yeah, if you don't oh. have a steep angle, if yeah. it's too flat. You, there's no way to make it look good. The only yeah. reason it looks good on the XS is because the the drop is so steep yeah, that it really flattens steep. And, yep. it, and it keeps that downward yeah. line. But yeah, oh, I agree. Like, I'm totally about you know the look of the bike comes first yeah. on that. Yeah, and the same exact yeah. Way. So it's like if you know there's I've got a, a hardtail you know one off bike that I want to do for um, the 100 year anniversary of Laconia. and that bike it's going to have a king queen on it, but it's not going to be a high mileage king queen it's about keeping it thin and looking really yeah. good um there's this guy i think he's in europe uh resi choppers yeah. he built a bike that he's got a king queen on that i swear is like three inches wide yeah it's but it looks killer and you know those bikes they're fun to ride but you got to be honest with yourself you're just bar hopping on those you're not throwing a pack on it and doing 2,000 miles. Like, I mean, why fucking bother? Yeah. <laughs> That'd be a fucking trek. I'd yeah. say my seat is probably three and a half, four inches wide. Yeah. And I ride that fucking thing. Like, I've gone out to... I mean, Worcester's not super far, but it's 100 miles each way. That's a me. rough ride. Yeah. Are you me talking my... about at the seat? At the seat part? Yeah. No. The top piece? Yeah. At the top piece, yes. Yeah, well, it always flares on the bottom. I think the bottom's maybe five inches. Eight yeah. inches. It's, it's in between my seat rails. God, it can't be five inches. It's like five, maybe five and a half inches. Six. That's as low as I'll go. <laughs> I but can go no my, lower. That's way, my lowest it's offer. My, yeah. Yeah. Way, it's not a big, wide fucking seat. Yeah. I agree. Yeah, it sits inside of the front. The only thing that helps me is that I have that like super steep pitch. Yep. So like I can literally like when my pack's on there. Oh, that's I everything. I can just like lean on the pack. That and, is. Oh yeah, that's I, everything. It's your back support is the biggest yeah. thing, and that I didn't really know before working on bikes day in and day out and riding all kinds of different seat styles. And it was if the lower part of your back is supported, and then on really long rides, if you can lean on a pack, that you could be sitting on metal. And it'd be fine. I mean, if you look at a lot of really expensive furniture, they're wood seats with no cushions on them. But because the shape of that seat fits your ass, right. you're plenty comfortable. Um, so, I mean, you can, I've been on a lot of hardtails that have been surprisingly comfortable. And it's the tire size and it's the shape of the seat is the biggest thing. You know, one problem that I found is with the skinnier seat is it doesn't kick your legs out wide enough. Mm. So my legs like hug my oil bag <laughs> dude that's like asking there's been time that we pull up to a light and i'm like throwing my legs out to oh the yeah side, oh, it's yeah. like burning yeah we'll get a good little burn on that yeah. oh yeah because harley's run nice and cold yeah. you know so that oil yeah. never gets Especially too, too hot <laughs> yeah, oh yeah just on fire yeah absolutely yeah that is a tricky it's a tricky thing to get around. It sucks. Unless you have like a narrower oil bag or you do, or you just do like, like Nigel's seat. doing and put it in the front. Or yeah. you just do a seat that's as wide as your fucking seat rails. Yeah. It'd be good. Oh, I see. <laughs> yeah, because then you can't, uh, your legs can't go. Yeah, then your legs like push out a little bit, but right. it's tough. Yeah, I put a full saddle thing. on that thing. I'm about to do oil in frame just so I can get away from that shit. <laughs> <laughs> and then the whole frame is just scalding hot yeah, and your exactly. legs are still touching it. Yeah. There's no way around it. Har like Harleys that. are hot. Yeah. That's just, that's a part of the fun of it is you just burn yourself every time you get on it and Constantly. cover yourself in oil. I got an oil cooler telling myself that's going to make the world a difference. Yeah. Which, 
I know it's not because I for the engine it does, it. but for you, no. Yeah. Oh, did you? Yeah. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I took it off. I was I like, I need that in the front. But I'm hoping to be like a mental thing that'll help. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I've Tell measured my legs. <laughs> I've measured the temperature at um, the cylinders on some of the newer, like the twin cams, and uh, their operating temperature is 260 degrees. And I was able to get a bike just idling in the winter to hit 260 degrees. That's and a dry was, heat, though. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but I was just like thinking about being stuck in traffic on a hundred degree day. I mean, you're talking temperatures over three hundred degrees, Crazy. and most Easily. oil, unless you're running race oil, the breakdown point on that is somewhere in the three twenty range. I mean, the new one shut one cylinder down, right? That's actually a lot of guys complain about that, and it's like, well, I mean, you know how much a, an engine rebuild is on a Harley? Yeah. Why, shut that fucking cylinder about? off. Yeah. yeah, it's not going fast enough and idle. Yeah, yeah. well, <laughs> it doesn't. You don't matter? get the nice, you know, the potato skip that. You oh, know, I see. So the sound changes. Yeah, it turns into a like single that. cylinder thumper, and <laughs> all of a sudden people are like, "Nice Virago." Yeah. Like, yeah. Like Fuck. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, just let your engine overheat to keep your vanity for your Harley. Yeah. <laughs> but, I didn't spend all this money to have people mistake this for yep, a jet bike. Yep. Exactly. Exactly. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's a great. I'm just gonna stop pulling a plug. Yeah, that, I've watched guys do that before, especially on uh, older four-cylinders like CBs or Suzuki's. I've come to the point on my cafe where I've wanted to pull the center cylinders. Because yeah. sitting up at Hampton Beach at the Circle or whatever on a 100-degree day, just watching all of the oil burning off the top of it. And I'm like, I've got to pull over and so wait. I went to Hampton Beach one time on my bike, got halfway down the strip after like an hour and a half, shut my bike off, and pushed it down the sidewalk to the back strip so I could go home. Yeah. I was like, I just can't do this anymore. Yeah. Oh, I've, I've bailed going up there to ride. Like, you know, you always want to do the little parade lap, all of yeah, us deep down inside. Yeah, like, yeah. that's just the thing out here. You, mm -hmm. you buy the new car, the new bike. The first thing you do is go to the loop that's and drive it. that. But then you get up there like and you're sitting. Like 15 times. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, but then you get in that traffic and you're like, fuck this, I want to ride. And yeah. the nice thing about a bike is you can, like, push it out and try to get, you know, north of Hampton, yep. head up towards Portsmouth. But, uh. Yeah, those old air-cooled bikes, they're fun, but you've also got to deal with what comes with that. Yeah, it, uh, it's got some issues. Yeah, plenty of issues. Harley's always got issues. <laughs> but those Buells seem to seem to hold up fine. I don't hear anybody complaining about engine issues with them. I... Yeah, it's, uh, it's interesting because um, so before I got the Buell, I knew enough about Eric Buell and his racing program um, and... I kind of learned a lot more about it once I got this one, uh, specifically because, you know, I was looking at buying an XS650 for cheap and my boss had offered me this and I'm like, right, you know, obviously the 650 is a little bit slower because the displacement is, you know, almost half, but I was like, rebuilding a Harley engine is crazy expensive. I'm mm -hmm. like, a Yamaha has got to be way cheaper. And then I started looking at the prices for top ends and doing the 750 kits and stuff. And I was yep. like, shit, this is kind of pricey. And then when I started learning more about the Buell engine that's in this, and so this is an O2, this is before Buell started making kind of their own bottom end, even though it's still a Sportster based motor, they did their sure. own cases. And, um, the big thing on this lightning engine is the crankshaft is lighter. And so the internals that are in this engine are all like race high performance. Um, it's got 10 to one compression heads. Um, and big valves, big ports and yeah. all of this stuff that's kind of 
masked underneath a Sportster motor. And I think a lot of the other things that probably got done was the way that this high performance engine was designed was getting away from the Harley, keep it like it was and actually go to what it needs to be. Sure. Um, Harleys are, I love them, but they are dog shit awful as far as how they're designed. <laughs> they really are just, they, the knucklehead, they designed that and they've just been basically changing the shape of it for the last almost hundred years. Right. Um, they're cool. You can, you know, you bend a push rod, just go out in the woods and find a stout stick, shove it in there. You'll get home. That's the amazing part about it. But if you want to get horsepower or reliability out of them, that's just, you're asking for the wrong fight. And I think with the Buell, the way that, you know, a light crankshaft and really efficient high performance heads in a top end, you're going to also get reliability out of it, I think is the big thing. Um, and also probably just nobody rides Buells is why you don't hear about them failing. Yeah, that's a good <laughs> it's point. Just, it's so rare. They it, really, uh... it's, it was such a, a weird bike and a, a pretty ugly bike and nobody who likes street bikes likes Harleys. So they're not going to buy a street bike with a Harley motor. They got pretty popular, like like six years ago like they, well the motors got popular oh yeah because guys found out about like choppers yeah shit. exactly but that really was the the forever like it being a just marketed for like the fact that harley put his name on it i guess is what i'm trying to say was always the strangest thing yeah because visually it didn't look it was like it had v-rod syndrome well and that's know, where like it's and, it's designed by someone better yeah. But everyone hates it because it doesn't look like exactly, the and that's it's one of the, the amazing thing about the story of Harley and Buell and the V Rod is exactly what you're talking about. And you had somebody who really knew how to make something that worked really, really well. But his designs, you know, visually, what he wanted to make for bikes were not something that Harley people liked, and even street bike people were kind of like, yeah, we don't. It's kind of halfway in the middle. Yeah, right? it was very. It was a compromised looking bike, um, and then. The V-Rod actually is essentially a Buell. Um, Eric Buell, that engine, the VR1200, started life as a VR1000, and it's this really cool motor. Um, there's a shitload of them at the uh, Harley Museum, and they're these immensely powerful little uh, V-twin engines. And Eric propositioned, you know, Harley about, let's build a Harley around this. You know, put put a Harley badge on the side of something that is kind of in my world. And that's what the V-Rod came about. And they got some help from Porsche to kind of get the reliability there. And they just totally missed on the styling. And so just bad. anytime you do anything to a Harley, if it doesn't look like an FL or an FX, it's probably not going to sell. Well, here's the thing right. that doesn't make sense was like you're building like the Buell and the V-Rod, which essentially just a hopped up motor. Yep. Like, why not just put it in a dyna? Yeah, right. And that, I don't get that. <laughs> that was the other weird thing is that Harley had at their disposal a hundred horsepower Sportster motor that they could have easily put in some, like a Sportster R. Right. And it was right. still a Sportster and maybe put tracker bars on it. Put kind a of big like, fucking eagle on it. Yeah. And Done. it would, would have sold like crazy because they did bring back the XR. Um, they did the XR1200, I think, in 2005 oh, yeah, or 2006. Is that the one that was kind of like a flatter looking? Yeah, it, it looked with... kind of like the old XR750s. And that is essentially... It took them way long after they kind of axed the Buell program to use some of the stuff that he had done. And even that bike didn't sell well, or they just didn't make enough of them. But it is strange that they had somebody who could get the power out of a Harley, 
and that's the 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 knuckleheads i think the uh the 72 or 74 inch motors were like 60 horsepower if you go look at an evo they're like 75 horsepower you know over the course of 50 60 years you've right. only been able to eke out 15 more horsepower maybe it's time to go to somebody who knows how to to get that out and make these bikes truly right. fast i mean they're <laughs> torquey as all hell and that's yeah. fun but you know once you get on the highway and you're in fifth gear you're like all right get past 90 almost past 100 and if you put your big old lady on the back of that you know you're just oh we're doing 85 the whole way there it's that's right. all right you know so yeah it's crazy that buell didn't um they didn't use, you know, Buell for what Harley needed. Um, you know, they could have taken advantage of it a lot more. But the benefit is, you know, I don't want to say it on the podcast, but you can go out and get a, a Buell running and riding for three grand and put that motor in your chopper and yep. be well ahead of the game. Yeah. It's one of the greatest secrets out there. Yeah. You know? And people is. are starting to find out about it, but it's still, you know, guys don't want to go buy a Buell because it's a Buell but um, right. you lift the skirt up and there's some got to find that crash fuel with that oh yeah with that great motor oh yeah like think just if you like think about it, like how many that would have sold in a Dyna frame holy crap just like a fast ass fucking Dyna yeah everybody would have been on it oh absolutely everybody yeah, yeah. I'm and like instead like let's see if we can make the ugliest yeah bike let's <laughs> yeah. change all what the variables motor. yeah exactly <laughs> it was it was such a strange approach for a cruiser company to back a sport bike company that wasn't really a sport bike company. You know, it was just... It, I thought Harley was a t-shirt company. Well, yeah, definitely oh, they got now. some bikes in there, too. <laughs> yeah, that's definitely the biggest thing. But, uh, yeah, it, it's it's such a... It's, oh, it's a weird thing, and it's fascinating when you really read into Eric Buell as a person and his relationship with Harley and how Harley never really truly supported him. Um, you know, it's he's just a passionate individual, um, who just wanted to go fast and really believed that the Harley was the right program. Um, he just needed somebody else designing what the bikes looked like, and right. I think it would have been yeah. a lot more successful. I wonder why he went to Harley. I think. I wonder why somebody like that wouldn't have gone to somebody who would who would have appeared to have it. been yeah. so much well, more into you, that. Like if you think about it, like if you make a product, yeah, and say you could either go with Loctite Shop Shop, yeah, or Low Brow Customs. They're right. gonna go with the more well-known preferred motorcycle, right? But you could, but he could have gone to Yamaha. He could have gone to yeah, who, Honda. Like, well, I think the you biggest, know what I mean, like who who was all who were already designing yeah, things I, to go faster than Harley's. You'd think that that'd be where. I think part of it might have been the challenge of the fact that Harley was one of the only major motorcycle manufacturers who was still slow. Yeah, who was And then the other thing, too, That's was... That's true. Yeah, it's harder to improve upon... Like, right. Think about Yamaha, they the are one fast bikes. Yeah, exactly. That are super reliable, that are running like 100,000 miles. Yeah, right. exactly. They had all the pieces, and they don't need somebody coming in and telling them to change stuff. And I think his... Um, he always... Ducati was... I think what he was most fascinated with, and that was an air-cooled V-twin that made great horsepower. Um, yeah. And I think he saw the potential for Harley to be doing the same thing, and it probably was one of those, this is a challenge. And I'm pretty sure he's a pretty patriotic guy as well, so why not get the home team? True. Um, there was a racing series between, I don't know if it was Harley or if it was Buell was the team, but it was, uh, I think it was called like the V-Twin Masters or V-Twin Monsters, and it was literally a sport bike series between Ducati and Eric Buell and Harley. 
And so it was only air-cooled V-twins that could be entered in this. And Eric was out there beating up Ducatis with a Harley motor. And I think Good. that's where there was that potential. Um, and at the time, Indian was just building stuff with S&S motors. Um, so they weren't really a motorcycle manufacturer. Um, yeah, it is, you know, it's a... I think it was a challenge is the biggest thing. It was to be able to say he could, and he saw the potential right. in it. Um, but also back in the 60s and 70s, Harley had a association with Automaki in uh, Italy, and they were racing two-stroke um, sport bikes that said Harley-Davidson on the oh, side. Oh, I've seen And you can find, yeah, I think they're occasion. called, like, there's other, like, little tiny Enduros that are called, like, SX-175s, and they're a Harley. But right. what that engine really is, is it's a Italian two-stroke. And so it was kind of this, like, cross kind of um, collaboration to make bikes that Harley didn't know how to make, but there was a market for. Um, and so I think that was probably the other part of it that Eric saw, is that Harley used to go sport bike racing. And they were right. somewhat successful with it. And so I think he saw that. Well, in the, in the beginning, too, and they used to be a racing company. Yeah. When they were doing all the flat track stuff, oh, yeah. Yeah, you know, and the, all in... the stuff they documented on the, the revival show they made there yeah. of like where they were competing. They yeah. were trying to see who could Yeah, it was all race. about um, board track racing back when they first started. Um, and then it turned to flat track racing and it was just always this massive pissing contest between them and Indian. And then when some of the Janu Japanese manufacturers came in and it was always Harley that was winning. I mean, that right. the XR750 was... And still is the most dominant flat track bike that has ever existed. And it's one of those, like, Harley has the potential to make something that can be great, you know, right. from the factory. Not like what all of us do, which is buy the piece of shit and put all the work <laughs> into it and, you know, spend all the money. Like, okay, now, <laughs> now, now it works. <laughs> now it goes down yeah. the road and it doesn't cost me an arm and a leg every time I start <clears throat> the goddamn thing up. Um, yeah, it's crazy that like they just kind of dropped off as flat track kind of tapered away. And part of the thing I'm doing with the Buell, it's, a, you know, it's attached to that whole flat track kind of thing because, uh, the hooligan flat track racing has seen this massive revival in the last, I'd probably say five years. Um, it's becoming something that people actually go and watch not only on TV, but at the stands and right. any Joe Schmo can throw 19 inch wheels on his Harley and show up and you know, potentially win a championship, right. no factory backing, you know? So it's crazy. Yeah. And that's kind of the, the thing I want to do with this Buell, not only build a bike that goes to a show and looks badass, but it's going to function and race around a track. I kind of dying at the idea of putting down a custom paint job on a track, but yeah, <laughs> you know, and all these custom components that I'm putting on it. It's like, you gotta oh, get so those you uh, race that flat track. Like, like mama tried. That actually, not fit the category that's a the, I am trying to, the only thing that would keep this bike from potentially being enter, enterable, if that's a word, is, um, is technically know. the swing arm is three inches over. Uh, so, but it's a stock pivot point and a lot of the hooligan, um, the, there's a higher tier that's kind of a professional tier among the hooligan series and they run after market swing arms they don't run their stock swing arms on those bikes right. so the geometry of the suspension really hasn't changed all that much from what it was originally it's more idealized 
Um, but yeah, the mama tried flat track thing they do. I would love to enter that bike in. Um, I would actually really love to get that bike to that show next year, that mostly because of that integral part of the flat out Friday. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, as much as I say, I'm a bitch about, you know, riding a chopper to whatever show I do firmly believe that any bike should function in go. some way. It's gotta be fast. It's gotta be rideable when you want to ride it. It's gotta be rideable. Yeah. These bikes that um, some guys make that, yeah, they run and they ride, but um, the sketchy choppers where we actually had a guy who didn't have any hand controls on the bike. It was a suicide shift and the only brake was uh, the foot brake and it had a proportioning valve for the front and rear. And it it's was- amazing he even had a front. Yeah, well, it had front brakes, but it didn't have any hand. Right. So there was no way to pull the clutch in with your hand or the brake. And the thing is, you know, I tell people when they want to do a suicide shift is you've got to train yourself to put that right foot down when you come to a stop. Most of us, when we ride a normal bike, it just happens to be which, yeah, whichever way you're leaning. You know, if yeah. you're using the brake, you know, your foot brake, you're going to put your left foot down. Yep. Well, guess what? That habit doesn't work. You know, you're going to chug along through the intersection trying to pull the thing into neutral yeah. or put, you know, push the clutch in. And so... Um, I'm not a big fan of some of the sketchy choppers. I mean, I love looking at them because they're just <laughs> so clean fucked. bars, man. Yeah, clean bars. But at the same time, it's like I really love riding and not, you know, blasting through an intersection or. Uh, I think you'd get used to it if you rode that way. Oh, yeah. I mean, for... suicide bikes, I don't mind, but usually they have Little a handbrake. You know, that's Some of the them. But the ones, but like the, the ones you see at the shows, I feel like a lot of times they don't. They yeah. have the. It just looks like bicycle handlebars. Exactly. Um, and I actually don't like that look. I like the look of having controls up there because that's what a motorcycle's always had. You know? That's true. Um, they've always kind of had something up there to control the bike. So I think it's more of a challenge to make the controls look good than just take them off. Right. That's <laughs> and that's true. my opinion on There's it. There's some people making some really nice ones too. Yeah. Some of those ones. Those... I can't even run a front brake anymore. It's like. Same. I yeah. just can't. Well, that, and that goes to what well. I was saying before is you, is you forget, I didn't run one for like three years. I had this, the exact the setup that you're talking about. Yeah. And, and then when I got the excess finished, the, the rear brake was such dog shit that I had to put a front brake on because the drum wasn't doing anything. Yeah. And they do. I had to retrain myself to even to grab for anything. Up yep. there. It yeah. felt so weird to, yeah. like when I to have to use that. Now, yeah. Never once have grabbed the handbrake. So I've all, get it's there. I when I learned to ride the front brake was the one that um, I learned to use primarily. Yeah, and so way. then yeah. it became weird. Like Harley's, you definitely need to use a lot more rear brake on them. Um, sport bikes aren't nearly as heavy, so using one brake is fine. But when you get on a Harley, you've got to use both brakes to slow down a seven hundred pound monster. Sure, um, but yeah, once you stop using. Um, one of them or whatever it is. It's kind of like jumping on uh, a pre AMF sportster. Once you start getting used to shifting with your right foot, yeah. it it's not, See, I don't know it's if no, I can do that. it would feel weird. Um, I did, we did have a guy who brought in a chopper that was a, uh, uh, I think it was a, yeah, it was a foot shifter, but, um, it had no front brake. And so now in an emergency, you know, your brain says slam your right foot down when you want to stop. Well, if you do that, you're crunching gears because there was no front brake to grab. Oh, yeah, that, would that was the part of it that was a little weird. And plus it had a sproter on it 
And so that didn't work for shit. So that bike, I walked in the shop one day and I said, I'm not riding it anymore. It doesn't stop. Yeah. So yeah, my Sforza doesn't <laughs> stop for shit. I got no front brake, foot shift. Yeah. And it's an 87 Sforza that caliper does fucking nothing. Yeah. Uh, the Sproder is a crazy thing. The most Cause counter Because like, it's moving at, you know, like you can't, it's not like the, I don't know. Well, you've got a nice greasy chain getting That's grease all over yeah, your brake you rotor. That's just... Grease on it. You fucking... <laughs> I feel like it would lock up easier, but maybe that's just something I think would um, happen. They do lock up. So basically you press the brake and it feels like nothing's really happening. So you push it a bit harder and then it gets warm and it, you know, all the grease burns off and then it grabs. And so they do tend to be kind of like a switch. Right. So it is, they're like any chopper or any, you know, custom application. They, if you're like me, you're jumping on different bikes every day, day in and out, or like you, you know, you have to relearn the way to ride these bikes like all the brand new um ultra glides that are 900 pounds when i get on them i have to it's you turn the box you drive them like a car because if you lean them over and you get that a little bit wrong that motherfucker's on the ground yeah they're so goddamn heavy whereas then you get on an old fx you throw that thing around wherever and just ride the shit out of it and they're so much more fun but yeah, you're constantly kind of relearning everything. And then choppers, everybody builds theirs a little bit different, a little more sketchy than the sketchiness you know, the, is the, always the narrow high. bar competition that's been going on the last few oh years has been great to watch. And I that's think that's the other thing too, is my bars are so fucking narrow. Yeah. I love like, I love narrow rabbit ear bars. Those are my favorite. They're so comfortable. Just yeah. put your arms in your lap yeah. and just put down miles. But yeah, I think I saw somebody who because there was Someone who did the, their bars were only as wide as their grips that went around Instagram. And I think somebody else one up them with literally just a throttle is all that's on their trees. So I think the narrow bar competition is, has been one. <laughs> it's been one. Cause uh, the only way you go narrower than that is you've just got risers. Yeah. You just grab the <laughs> so, risers and you're going yeah, like joystick exactly. style. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So yeah, people do some crazy shit with that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's fun to watch everybody's creativity. You know, I, I have the bikes I like to ride, but I always appreciate people building what they like to ride and sticking to their guns for it. Yeah, definitely. Especially if they're riding it, you know, as much as I'll trailer show bikes and other things like that long distances, because I don't want my asshole to fall out on a thousand mile <laughs> ride. But, uh, you know, I appreciate when I see the guys roll in with plates from, you know, 2000 miles away and they've got a metal right. pan and this shitty old chopper that's leaking oil everywhere. And it's yeah. like, that's what it's all about being on these things, you know, not building it to park in front of the bar and say, Oh, look what I bought. You know, right. It's about building it, getting in your garage and making it different than the guy next to you. And if he copies you, then you make it different again. And yeah. You do yours longer, shorter, faster, whatever it is. It's just, I think it's hard to beat riding a skinny job though. It I is. I think that's a tough feeling to beat. Oh yeah, being that <laughs> like, tiny. Yeah, yeah. Just like feeling like you can throw that thing any which way you want. Oh yeah. Dude, when I put the bike in the bed and then we just like we pick the back of the bike up. Yeah. You just like lift the back tire and just like oh, oh, yeah, let me just, just move, move this over. Yeah, that's. It's gonna be hard. Even going from the XS to the Roadstar is gonna be hard. Mm-hmm. I won't be able to do that anymore. Oh, God, no. Roadstar is way too fucking heavy for that. Yeah, and that's yeah narrow narrow choppers or even like cafes where you're just taking off all the stuff. I mean, there's a picture of me and my ex on my cafe racer. And it basically looks like 
there's just two people rolling down the right. street because I mean I'm a tall guy, so any small bikes they just look like I'm yeah. fucking a football on it's it, and this hard. is even more because there's it's just a seat. There's nothing else after that, so it's two people, two wheels, right. and that's it. But it's so much fun because you're just completely out in the air, you know. And that's why all of us love riding because there's just nothing around us. And when you get on a skinny chop or a small cafe or a scrambler, I mean it feels as close as you can get to flying. Yeah. Oh so, yeah. And then if it's sketchy, it really is like flying because you might actually hit the ground. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously. So we kind of skipped over a little bit about you talking about some of the things you were doing on this Buell, but we didn't kind of touch on your background in fabrication. Yeah. And how you built the skills that you've gotten out. Let's, yeah. Let's dive into that a little Yeah, bit. I feel very fortunate that um, my father has been, I mean, my family, my grandfather used to race um he raced some guys ferrari in florida and he would build and work on his own cars in his garage and uh the way my grandparents met he had this small little alfa romeo that he would jump in the car after work on friday in miami and get up to massachusetts in 20 hours my dad's done the math on that and it's no part of it was legal you know back when it was only route one 93 wasn't a thing and then my dad used to race Enduros, um, and then he started racing cars, uh, raced a Datsun 510 that he tube-framed, and um, you know he was building his own parts for, and then he opened his own uh, repair shop that evolved into a restoration shop. And so as early as I can remember, I grew up up at Loudoun, you know, New Hampshire International yep. Speedway. Um, just a runt in the timing tower around all these race cars. Um, and then at my dad's shop, you know, that was the in-between daycare was being there. So I grew up around all these old vintage cars and, um, welders and, uh, working with metal. And then once I got a little bit older, uh, I started racing go-karts, but you know, it was on me to build certain things. And so I was learning to weld, you know, when I was really young and probably about high school is when I started welding. And I was very fortunate that Alvern um, over in Hudson had mm -hmm. their uh, tech side of things. And we had a really good welding teacher that is who awesome. came on and I had already welded. So I was a little bit ahead of the class. And then he kind of just, instead of saying, oh, okay, well, you did that for today. So just keep practicing. He would, I was on the TIG welder in welding one and he was showing me how to do all of that. And then by welding two, I was doing aluminum and stainless in That's high so school cool. and and then after school, I'd go work at my dad's shop and I wasn't just sweeping the floors, you know, I was panel beating on, you know, I remember this Austin Healy that I was working on trying to repair this aluminum, um, the whole entire front of the car from the windshield all the way forward was a one piece stamped aluminum and you can't get them. And so it was on me to patch and weld and hammer and patch and weld and hammer. And oh, man. so it was trial by fire. Um, and then, uh, yeah, just on and off throughout probably the last 10 years. Uh, anytime I was between jobs, I'd be working there. And then when I bought my first motorcycle, um, I actually have a picture of it the first night that I bought it and I was already tearing it down. I wanted to turn it into a <laughs> chopper. It was a, an 81 GS 550. Torqued down the first night, didn't even mark the wires that I pulled out of it and it. quickly realized, I was like, oh shit, I didn't mark where anything goes. And it was a running riding bike and quickly became not a running and riding bike. Uh, and then, yeah, at my dad's shop, uh, as late as I wanted to, I could be there cutting shit off of it, making stuff for it. Um, and then built it the first time, brought it up to Laconia. I 
drag the price or the uh, project out until a month and a half before and you know was working all day and all night to try and get it ready for that week to be able to go up there and ride with one of my good buddies who another chopper guy who you know always he had a iron head that um, he bobbed out and um, and yeah it's just been very fortunate that my background growing up with a father who you know grew up working on cars and had a restoration shop as well as my mother and my uncle are both engineers so oh, nice. not only do I have this mechanical and fabrication background I have people who are mechanical engineers uh, who understand beyond the fabrication side of stuff so when it comes to designing things I have these people that I can call on you know and then my cousin and both his grandfather and my grandfather were machinists so oh, the whole man. family the... just as you know when you look around I mean everybody in my family has been creating stuff um, right. and so I think it's just one of those things that just naturally it was gonna happen and I got away from it changed career paths started working in, in video and audio and I loved that a lot but it didn't really quite capture you know making something from scratch and then I moved out to Denver a year and a half ago and yeah I walked into that shop and and now it's like this is all I'm going to do no That's matter awesome. what um so yeah having the background there helped me immensely I mean it's it's crazy to think that I feel like a young guy doing this kind of stuff because I never really felt like that when I was much younger Sure. But, you know, there's a lot of guys that, um, you know, the great thing about the Greasy Dozen is it's this community of people who are, if they don't know something, they don't feel embarrassed at all to be like, what the fuck am I doing here? Right. And then the rest of us, if we know something, can go out and help them. And I've made it a point since forever when my friends would ask me to help work on their cars or people are like, hey, how do I do this? I learned everything from someone else. You know, sure. I didn't just uh, take this in by sponge or, right. you know, went out and like read all the books myself. I had people who were smarter than me telling me how to do things. And I learned from them and I feel obligated to do that with everybody else. If I can offer them tips or whatever to make them better. And I don't want to build bikes with other builders that suck at building. Right. I want all the th shit that we build to be awesome. You know, these hacked shitty bikes that people, you know, get big in the chest about like, Hey, look what I built. And it's like, all right, man, like, that's cool. Like yeah. you did it, but <laughs> yeah. maybe you should, maybe you should like go but back for and, how long. Yeah. And so it's like, I really would love, I love this community that's starting with the greasy dozen that is built around the community. It's not this kind of competition thing that we saw back with the build offs, you know, yeah. Billy Lane, Jesse James, this kind of inter hatred yeah. of everybody, like all the bikes they build <clears throat> suck. And it's like, you know, I'll be, I'll call someone out their bike sucks, but at the same time, I really want the bikes that I want to go to a show and be like, fucking, Hey, this is way better than something I built. Now I want to go back and right. I want to get better at it. Right. Um, that's what I like about that crazy dozen chat that we have. Yeah. Like sometimes I'm like, fuck man, this thing is just blowing up right now. Oh, I put it on silent. I just go back and check but it every like, once in a while. <laughs> it's cool that people will like go in there and be like, Hey, I don't know how the fuck. What can I do to make this yeah. happen? And like, you'll get fucking 12 different answers. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. And there's a, there's a million ways to skin a cat in this world. Um, and that's what I've learned probably over the last 10 or 15 years. 
working with different people at my dad's shop, you know, we'd always have different employees come in who had different levels of experience. Um, and then also just in the, the garage culture, working mm -hmm. with different friends or talking to different builders at shows and how they did it and everything. And it's, you know, the, to get from A to B, there's so many different ways to do it. And sometimes it's a combination of ways that people have done it. Right. Um, you know, I was, uh, I think his, his handle is Spezzo and he's building really cool bike he's doing the um it's the all aluminum yeah. fairing uh he posted that picture after he polished everything i was like well looks like i stepped my game up yeah, i think <laughs> it was i think it was spezzo that guy is doing like that. a crazy bike but spezzo i think he's doing maybe um i gotta find his thing because his bike is really cool he's building a lot of stuff that's like, like aircraft level shaping everything yeah and for the first yeah. time yeah, and it's actually, his bike is impressive. Um, let me pull up this other guy, because I think I got the handle wrong to the to the person. Um, I mean, What is the bike that this is on? Um, the the one-off, like, uh, fairing bike is a, I think it's an XT750. It's kind of a rare four-cylinder Yamaha. Um, yeah, Spezzo's bike is a bit different. He's actually I don't even know. Oh, it's an SR 500. I think that he's building, but everything on it is like, you got a picture of that fairing. Um, well, this isn't the fairing bike. This is the other, but I mean like all of his stuff is like, sh looks straight out of like a performance catalog. That's um, crazy. everything he's doing on this bike is cool. And that's the stuff like everybody in this show. He's oh, he, building. Who's the one that's building? Is yeah, this is the other bike. So if you look at his swing arm and like the brake caliper on there, I mean that stuff looks like you're going to the top notch performance. Oh shit! And yeah. so he he came. I think posted something about struggling with welding aluminum. Like, and everybody does. Aluminum is a very finicky thing to weld. And we just started going back and forth, and I was just letting him know, like, this is what I've done because all of the struggles he was having at the moment were things that I had been through and pulled my hair out and just punched walls and just fucked up so much stuff yeah. doing it the wrong way, taking somebody else's technique still didn't work. Right. And so I was giving him some tips and some different things that I had found even more recently. And then I told him, I said, I've been doing this for 10 years and I still fuck up. And he was like, don't tell me that. And it's like, man, you never, <laughs> you're never perfect at yeah. this. You're always learning. And um, that's, what's awesome about this show is guys are reaching out for help and they're just absorbing it. You know, there's none of this, like, I haven't once seen somebody go, Oh, that's not the right way to do it. You know? Cause I think right. we all know that that's just never there's the case. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And especially with all the different bikes, you know, the approach you're taking the stuff and everything. So to, to be invited to this show, um, is just awesome because this is exactly the kind of stuff that. I want to be a part of, um, make friends through it and help everybody along the way kind of a thing. Right. I think the chopper community of yesteryear was just the total opposite of that. I mean, even back in the seventies, the nineties, it was a secret. Everybody was stealing from so-and-so the stories I hear from my boss, cause they were going up to Sturgis all the time. They were one of the big shops that was working with Avon to do the fat tires. Mm -hmm. I remember Mike tells me a story that he was up at Sturgis and he was talking to Avon and he's like, you know, I think I can put a 200 width tire on a soft tail. And Avon was like, well, how the fuck are you going to do that? Cause the, there's no room for the pulley or the brakes or anything. And he said, well, we'll make the swing arm wider. And Avon was like, 
Okay, because at the time, custom soft tails weren't a thing. Right. You right. would do hard tails, and you could do whatever to those because you're already fabricating it. But to take a stock soft tail swing arm and, and widen it, well, you're widening the frame, so nobody really knew kind of how they were going to do it. And um, Mike went to Avon. They said, yeah, I guess we'll, we'll send you a tire. And he showed up the next year. And their bikes, their custom bikes they always built were always prototypes. They were just in primer. They were never finished, dolled up bikes. They were just these, you know, big ass 117s, 124s in there and just all power, big fat tire on the back and everything. And they even admit that it started snowballing way too far. You know, we get some of the big dogs <laughs> and iron horses that have 300s on the back of them. Yeah. And they're not even rideable. Right. But, you know, it was, Mike talks about how certain guys who, um, you know, design certain custom frames back in the early years, Harley would show up and they'd walk around your bike and, oh, it's a pretty cool bike. And they'd ask you about how you do it and whatnot. Two years later, all of a sudden there's a custom option on the Harleys that, right. Yeah. And it's just people stealing from everybody. And this is kind of backstabbing culture. Um, you know, now I think the community that's starting is it's a lot more just open and pushing everybody to do things better, do things cooler. Yeah, uh, so it's definitely cool to be a part of. And I think the other thing too that we were talking about a little bit off air, but the cost of entry on these things nowadays versus what it used to be. Oh yeah, dramatically different. Anybody Crazy. can have a fabrication shop in their home. Yeah, for the for, most part, you know, a fraction of the cost of, oh, yeah. of what you I mean, would pay back in the day. I mean, just to buy, even like you know, you just bought a lathe, and the price that you paid for it compared to what it would have been new was just, I mean, back in the day to have a lathe as a personal builder was just not a, so I looked it up when it was brand new and in 19. So the one that I got is between 1945 and like 1950 something, mm -hmm. 200 bucks brand new. Yeah. But when you go with like the back then, money difference, yeah. it'd be $2,000. Yeah. And that, and that's, that's a, a small, that's a small <laughs> lathe and that's two grand. You know, that's not something I'm doling out right, right now. I wouldn't even pay that for a lathe right now. Right. Kind Same. of thing. Yeah. You know, that's a lot of money for me to pay for a lathe. Yep. And so, but you can find these old bridge ports and even old like uh, craftsman brand lathes and mills. And it might not be, you know, uh, a knee mill, but it's something that can, you can get into and you can find used parts from yesteryear that are still high quality or even in the world of 3d printing um one program i think everybody needs to look into is fusion 360 it's Keep a cad program about this. yeah it's so intuitive if you are not a computer designer the way you build stuff is the same way that you would draw it or make it in real life and i used autocad in high school and it made sense but it was a lot more math and equations and geometry than it was just like i know this needs to be this and i know what it needs to look like i just need something to make it precise and fusion 360 um, they have a hobbyist um, license that allows you access to most of the program and then you can send it to somebody to 3d print your parts or you can send it to a cnc shop and you've done the expensive piece or even getting um small or old CNC machines that are 20 years old that are totally outdated by today's machinist standards, but you can go pick them up, you know, full blown CNC, like three axis for like five grand. Right. That machine brand new was $130,000. Right. And you can get a small TIG welder from Miller even for a grand. 
Yeah. And yeah, it's going to add up and it's going to get crazy expensive. But the cost for a professional shop to have gone out and done this is in the hundreds of thousands of dollars. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and then you can go out and you can buy some of these. You know, guys always want a Harley and I get it. But you can go out and get an old four-cylinder and make a old four-cylinder chopper. And my cafe, when I built it the first time, cost me $1,200. I mean, that was fully painted, frame painted, everything taken apart, put back together, and all this custom work done. The second time I built it, it might have cost me 2000 And I just took it to another level, you know, right. with the paint and everything. So you can get out there and build these custom things. And even if you want to open your own shop or something, you can get into it. And you're not going to bankrupt yourself permanently. Um, and then the other thing, too, going back to the community... You can reach out to somebody and it's something that you don't know how to do and you can have them make the parts that you weld together or something like right. that. And there's so many guys who are opening up small operations where they specialize in one thing. Um, the Bone Orchard up in May. That yeah. guy's been doing the, <laughs> yeah, the Century replica springers that he's making are amazing. Yeah. I mean, they are so just... Cool. And that's, and he's just this one guy doing something that he loves. And I think he talked about it once that, you know, he just kind of like did it for himself and then one person wanted one and it was just that snowball effect. Yep. And now, you know, that's what he's doing. And there's all kinds of guys across the country doing that and they're affordable. I mean, even the, I think the Nest Springers when they were new back in the seventies were more than what he's charging for them now. And it's just... I mean, and if you find an actual Century Springer, I mean, it's just one of those, you right. know, to hand a blank check over, right. grab it kind of a thing. So, you know, the affordability of being able to get into this industry, um, the information that's out there, if you ask for it. That's huge, too. Yeah. Through the internet, too, because you got to remember, everybody's oh, looking yeah. this up in a fucking trade magazine. They're yep. trying to call their friend on their landline and hope oh, they yeah. reached them. Yeah. And then they there's no phone in the shop. I can't even imagine oh, how yeah. difficult it must have been to to and then nowadays you make a build thread on Chopcoal and all the guys who struggled through will, yesteryear are right there like, yeah. oh yeah, this is what you gotta do. I will yeah. say though, I think that's a little bit of a downfall. Because and I wanna like say that there's not cool shit being put on now. Yeah. You see more of the same shit being put on now. Agreed. Because you can just go on Google and type in like yeah, Evo Chopper. But like right. back in like the sixties, you're like, well, hopefully this works. Yeah, and you like, didn't quit building. Crazy you didn't have shit. <laughs> tons and tons of inspiration to go right. off. Of. You know, when those guys were first building choppers in the sixties, I think about that all the time because yeah, I consider myself a creative person. But everything I think up is inspired by something that I've seen before, mm-hmm. whether it's in the chopper world or back in the race car world, something like that. It's not a completely original thought. I think about, I can't think of his name, but when he really started raking necks out to like 40, 45 degrees and doing these like 30 over, 40 over springers and the girders and things like that, like what made them just, where was this idea to make the front end just long? You know, it just popped into somebody's head like one a day. Contest, right? Well, the, the longer, there definitely was a pissing contest. See, we could have the long front end, but that first like, oh, let's really lay this yeah. front end over. That'll look cool. Like, to look at a motorcycle and think that would look cool it and for it to turn it. Jealous. You know yeah, I, mean? I think the same thing yeah. about those, the chopper ideas that they came up with back then. And doing, you know, taking a, a stock tank 
and cutting the centers out of the split tanks and then welding them together as one tank to make it narrow. Right. Things like that, that why would you do that? Right. You like know? why would it matter to you how narrow it was or wasn't? Right. And then it just, it started this thing that, you know, I grew up looking at in all the Ed Roth books and, um, back in those days when guys were starting to do like the molded frames and things. And now you've got all the narrow stuff, but now guys were like, what if it was just all one flowing yeah. sculpture and all these swirls and this and that, and just You're like, where the fuck did this come from? Yeah. <laughs> and it's just, I think about it now, like I have the creativity that I feel like at my max can't even come close to what those guys were doing in the hot rod and chopper world in the sixties and seventies. Right. It was just, it was the Renaissance really is what it was. I think it's like, if you just didn't, like, be on the internet, don't be on Instagram, don't, you know what I mean? You wouldn't, like, I fit, because you always hear, like, Brandon has said a bunch of times on the show, like, we're not doing anything new. Yeah. That's because we can look at fucking everything. Yeah. And, like, I have this big thing where, and it's not putting down any other podcast, yeah. but I will not listen to another Chopper podcast. Because same I don't though. want to pull inspiration. Yeah, I don't yeah. want to accidentally, like, accidentally right. and start yep. doing the same shit somebody oh, else. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And then before you know it, you're like, ooh, that was that sounded pretty good on there. Let me start doing that yeah. on here. It's like, nope, yep. I just keep it. But it's so tough clean. in the chopper community because like you're hitting these shows and you're like, like you said, like you'll see like the one one idea I came up with, like I seen I think I don't even remember what it was on, maybe like a sports or like short pipes that just dumped out, yep. but it had one twist in the middle. Mm-hmm. So then I was like, oh, I'm going to make long pipes, upsweep up sweep them, yeah. and then do a bunch of twists. Yep. But then I was like, fuck, I came off that guy. Yeah. Like, and I think, I mean, that's, I think that early, the early years of choppers and hot rods, we look at it and like, how do they come up with this stuff? And maybe they were pulling it from somewhere else that mm. we just, we're not connecting, you know, kind of a thing. But when you look at any creative community, the world of music, um, they talk about it a lot that they heard one particular riff from one song and that started the whole genre or something like that. Yeah. And it was, you know, you get inspired by something and I think that's perfectly okay. And it's about, okay, I saw that instead of copying it, how can I do it different? Like you said, make them upswept and twist more. Right. You know, it takes one thing. I see it all the time. Um, Instagram has been the most amazing inspiration generator is you go and you see this bike that hits the scene and you're like, Oh man, that's cool. But then you go, what if we went this far with it or made it this yeah. low or stretched this out or take it, you know, that guy might've not even thought to go that far with it, but now it's started this whole, you know, genre of a cert certain chopper, you know, right. it's like the skinny choppers when they started coming back and, um, the, like the Frisco style choppers started coming back all of a sudden guys had this new wind of creativity about them. I mean, there's plenty of people out there who were literally just looking at a David Mann photo and, and just right. remaking right. that. And they see it. My least favorite thing that ever happens is guys go on, um, Instagram and, it definitely happens at any professional shop when you're building, you know, bikes, guys come in with a, a Google image and go, I want this. And, you know, you'll go, well, what about if we change? No, I want this. And it's like, all right, yeah, I'm gonna build a whole replica here. Right? Yeah, exactly. You build essentially a replica of something somebody saw on Google. Uh, Rue said, I think the best is the difference between making a magazine bike and making a magazine bike. You know what I mean? Like, it's different than copying what you see in a magazine and right. making something that goes into a magazine. Into a magazine, exactly. Right. And I feel like, too, some of this stuff reaching back into yesteryear here, though, is came out of necessity back in the day. Like, I remember looking up the history of the, the jockey shift, 
and that was people's mousetraps breaking, and they you couldn't get the parts. So yeah. guys were putting the shifter right on the fucking transmission, yep. and you were shifting it that way. Yeah. And that was like a that was some dumb shit to do back then because you still wanted to ride your bike, much like today. Yep. You know, something fucking falls off, and you're like, oh, okay, well, I still want to ride it this weekend, so I'll just mount this shit right in the transmission and right. cutting off the. The fender flap, you know, when they had the the folding rear fender, they yep. just got rid of it because it was easier to change the tire without right. the yeah, fucking thing. Yeah, getting rid of it, just pulling stuff off. And then off all of, of a sudden, now you, these small back fenders. Now this is a this yep. is a trend, but this all came from people being too lazy to lift the fucking fender up, yeah, or they just, broke the mechanism, and yeah. then it just didn't work anymore. Exactly, and it, it started that that cult. I mean, that was exactly what started with the hot rods. Guys would take these old flathead, you know, Model Ts or something like that. And they'd want to go to the Bonneville salt vats and flats and they'd want to go fast. And it was like, all right, get rid of these fucking fenders. They're just catching wind and they're right. too heavy and, you know, chopping the roofs off because that's just catching air and just make these tiny little windshields and they just sit down in it. And same with like the, um, the old fuel tank hot rods. Yeah. There was all these fuel cells sitting around in surplus and somebody the down in SoCal. The front, right? Well, no, no. The, um, the old plane fuel cells, they just oh, like look okay. like a torpedo. Gotcha. Yep. Somebody was like. I can put an engine in that, and that thing is aerodynamic. And they just cut a hole in the top of it, put an engine in it, stuck axles in it, and made one of the fastest cars. And this is grassroots stuff. I mean, just, this isn't full factory backing, and it was just this little vision of the stuff that was sitting around and just trying to go faster. Right. And then in the 60s and 70s, it's like, okay, we're going fast, but now we can make shit look cool. Right, and then right. that the whole thing that came from necessity about going fast, getting rid of all this dumb shit that they put on it, and I mean, that's the same thing I think that all of us do when we're building custom bikes. I mean, the Buell, first thing I did was cut the seat frames off and all of that. Right. I cut off all the mounting tabs in there. Don't need any of this. I'm going to make my own. And then looking at, okay, the oil tank can't be here because the shock's going through. I got to make my own. A lot of my designs on this Buell are overly complicated, creative things that are coming out of necessity from deciding to do a monoshock and wanting to do like the slim MX style seat because right. the seat right. when they get really fat they look really bad and yeah. the moto seats are I mean it's a banana and so that those few things have driven more of the design out of necessity and I love when creativity comes from that place where um, I think Porsche has been quoted back in the in the 60s as saying beauty comes from necessity and all of those race cars back in the 60s and 70s are just absolutely gorgeous. But they were not built to be pretty cars. They were built to do one thing, and that was go fast. But because of that ideal shape, you know, right. it, they became this kind of beautiful thing. And I think that's the same thing when you look at, you know, the chopper. I want it to be a hardtail. Well, if I'm going to be a hardtail, it's got to follow that down tube line. Because yeah. you see guys who do hardtails where the, the down tube is at this angle and the hardtail comes off and then it ends up on fuck your bike sucks. Yeah. Like it, <laughs> it takes no time at all to do have a home build end up on that page. Yep. You know? So I forgot it, about that page. I got to oh, get back on there. I see love it. That's, that's, like, that's a page like, please. Yeah. Just never let this happen. <laughs> yeah. That's the one place you want to avoid ending yeah. up on. Like, that'll just shut I your career down. I wouldn't even comment on anything, so I just don't want them like, oh, let me check this profile out. Yeah. Let, me, let me see what he's building. 
Yeah, I do. So I'm going to probably bring some. I think at one point, I even maybe one of my posts, I'm like, I really hope this Buell doesn't end up on Fuck Your Bike Sucks. Like, that's my, like, one goal. Because it's like, (laughs) things can be going well, and then all of a sudden, when it comes together, just the proportions aren't right, and it just looks off. And That's been my biggest fear with the shovel that I'm doing. Because I don't build swing on bikes. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And it's like, now I'm like... Swing arms are really difficult to make. How do I make this still like hold like that line of chopper but keep it a swing on yeah you know what i mean it is really difficult and we've had some bikes that have come in um that i can't really remember specifically but did it really well and a lot of it is all the fender in the seat that is where that whole thing really comes together because you've got those shocks on the side and the swing arm that's you know above the bottom of the frame and so the i'm a big proponent of like the um uh, I can't, they just totally spaced on the name of the fender. Um, but like Crazy the Bob, Franks. well, no, the, like the Bob style fender, um, just the upswept fender that all the like FXEs had like and everything. Yeah. Ducktails, yeah. another that's way guys call. <laughs> and that's, I think it's the only fender you can run on a swing arm frame. My biggest it's just problem. when you do the follow fenders, they just never look right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. My biggest problem has been not drawing inspiration from Jeff Cochran. Because he's like the king mm-hmm. of swing on choppers. Yeah. And it's like, when you type in swing on chopper, like, his bikes come up. Yeah. That's what's in Google. Yep. So I, it's so hard to, like, keep on, like I said, that swing on chopper thing, but yeah. not do what he's already done. You should uh, look up, I think it's AEC or AE Choppers. Um, he's a guy out of Idaho who is painfully meticulous about the way he builds frames and stuff and he builds like kind of deraked like um two up uh frames but a lot of the stuff he's built are um swing arm style frames and he's working on an fxr chopper right now that i I think i've seen that yeah and his i mean everything he does is like it's better than any production facility like his welds are just perfect like they're drawn out of a catalog and everything he does is and it's stuff you're not going to see once it's painted so his depth and stuff and he does like and it's crazy to see him do something that's a swing arm type frame and it's still like shit that looks fucking good and it's like it's not even taking a raw like it's a a ground up frame right so it's not like he had a bike on a rack to start looking at where so like where i'm gonna stretch this and that it's like there's an empty space he puts an engine up on the rack and he just kind of goes at it this and it's crazy to see the stuff he comes out with um my other problem has been is like so I want to make a swing on chopper, but I don't want to make a swing on chopper that looks like I'm trying to make a hardtail chopper. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, I don't want to do like the long front end like you do on a hardtail. Yeah. Right. So it's like, it's just the so sprung hard to seat on top it. of the shocks. You it's know? so yeah. fucking hard. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, that's the fun of it though. I think if it wasn't a challenge, then, right. you know, what's the point? If you're just like, I look at some of the bigger shops that just pump out the same thing over and over again or there's the one thing that they're known for and they just bang it out bang it out bang it out i mean it's a job at the end of the day and i get it but at the same time like the only thing that keeps you going is oh shit this is hard how the fuck am i going to do this like the challenge of making um working at a professional shop that takes in a lot of like oh i want to put this wheel on the back i mean the amount of custom work that is involved in putting a wider wheel on a harley is 
laughable. Yeah. Like I never would have expected the amount of work it takes to keep a wheel centered that was not made for a bike. Right. It's just like crazy. But um, that challenge of how am I going to make this work and still look good? Um, I think that's where it all just stems from at the end yeah. of the day. Right. Very true. So what do you got? next steps here on the build what's uh my family was asking me the same thing and the answer is basically everything um perfect the i've finished the the big items which was the oil tanks um the intake and the swing arm those were the pieces that are so crucial to everything else being done because they needed to get done to be able to do the fuel tank to be able to do where the suspension's going to mount and all of those other critical things. Right. So basically the build is almost like just starting. Um, and as soon as I get back to Denver, it's going to be absolute flat out. Like every moment of the day that I have time to work on it, I'm just gonna have to force myself to. Right. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a lot of stuff. Um, the speedo is being built and kind of molded into the fuel tank and the ignition and light switches are being built into the fuel tank and everything is just trying to, hide and stuff inside of it things probably only gonna be able to hold like a gallon of fuel by the time i hide everything underneath <laughs> all the, the fuel compartments tank. yeah because yeah, it's of it. It, the shape of the top of the frame is like this diamond and i can't make it too tall otherwise it'll look like a top hat and right. so the height that i've kind of determined and where the seat tapers to it i'm looking at you know eh, like six quarts of fuel and like it's but it's if that's what it holds that's what it holds because i'm not going to make this big dumb tank Right. Just put a lot of auxiliary tanks hanging off the back of it. You know, have a five gallon red yeah. plastic tank sitting on the back of the seat with me. Yeah. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of stuff to be done. I mean, the headlight on this is going to be pretty cool. Um, using a bunch of different LEDs and then a big Lexan number plate in the front of it. Nice. Um, so I really want it to look like a race bike, but it's going to have full directionals, signals, brake lights. You know, nothing's being chopped off. It's going to be a fully functional like street bike um but hopefully it's going to look like a raw stripped down race bike um we'll see how much actually ends up on it you know come <laughs> march i'm sure the checklist is going to get cut yeah. in half you yeah, know sure. it's going to be like okay just get <laughs> shit on the bike and get it painted right kind of a thing make sure it runs and you know stops and all of that shit all that so, good stuff yeah and all the problems that come with that, you know, wiring and, oh, shit, this didn't... I don't even know that yeah. the swing arm is going to hold the bike up yet. Because of the it being split, it does have a fair amount of flex to it more than a single solid piece. Sure. Um, so, yeah, I have no idea if I'm going to sit on the bike and the swing arm is just going to, you know, splay out yeah. and whatever. So it's Bend. like there's still a lot of... You know, this carburetor has never been mounted on a Sportster. Um, it's a really old racing carburetor. So to get parts for it is really hard. So there's a lot of, uh, up in the air, like who on. fucking knows if this is actually all going to work. If yeah. it does, it's going to be cool. If it doesn't, it's not going to work at all. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's it's going to be uh, a living room piece. But you'll quick. pivot, you know? Yeah. Well, no you have what, to. I'm sure. Yeah, absolutely. That's awesome. Well, I think we're, we're getting up, uh, getting close to two hours. So, yeah. Fuck. 
I think we're at a good spot to start uh, kind of winding things down yeah, here. Yeah, man, I'll, I'll talk anybody's ear off about choppers. I just put up a Listen, that's about, what we yeah. love. <laughs> so. that, is the, that is the perfect thing for yeah. around here. And I'm so glad that this all worked out. Yeah, it's, it's awesome. Yeah, because I fly out tomorrow. So, um, oh shit! Well, appreciate you getting out here yeah. on such a tight uh, schedule. I've been up here. I've been up here for a bit. It's been a, a longer vacation, almost too long. I love my family, but you, you ready know, to go back? Yeah, we all have our home for a reason and our, our normal day to day lives. So it'll be good to to get back to it. Um, I've definitely been eager to get back to the build and whatnot. But yeah, this has been been awesome. Uh, to get up here, some fellow Granite Staters and New Hampshireites, yes, whatever, whatever the fuck we call ourselves. Right. You know, I love Denver, but New Hampshire's my home. So I hear you on that. Well, and we're definitely going to have to have you back again, uh, closer to the deadline. We talked a little bit this yeah. uh, off air, but yeah, we'll be we'll be getting everybody rounded up, and like you said. Then you'll be further along on the build. We're going to yeah. find out if that carburetor works. Yeah. We're going to find out about that swing arm. <laughs> yeah. We'll have a lot more information from everybody. Yeah. But, um, yeah, dude, it's been awesome talking to you. Do you have any uh, closing thoughts for the people as we kind of wind this one down here? I don't even know. I mean, I, I would say, you know, if you're, if you're at all interested in, in doing this and getting into building show bikes, I mean, just get out there and do it and start reaching out to people like myself and you guys asking questions. Um, most anybody who's been in this game for a long time owes it to a lot of other people and they will either direct you to those resources or help you out themselves. Uh, find a shop that's willing to let you come in, sweep the floors, watch what they're doing uh, and go. ask a lot of questions um, and just get in there and do it. It's not as expensive as you think. And it's, it's pretty fun. I love it, man. It's perfect. So to close this one out, I will say if you got some stuff to do on this build, don't wait. Yeah. That's why I got a motherfucking date with some new axle plates. <laughs> God, I didn't know we we're closing out the show already. Actually, before we close the show out completely, let's get into these motherfucking outro sponsors first up we've got lowbrow customs everything you need for the road ahead since 2000 motherfucking four they've been in the game a long time and they've got a ton of stuff all under one roof head on over to lowbrowcustoms.com or at lowbrow customs on instagram check out what they've got in stock guaranteed to be something you need next up we've got hypnic jerk customs making some of the dopest fucking taillights you've ever seen. We talked earlier in the show about how having the internet is a good way for everybody to end up having the same parts. If you want to set that bike apart and get something that nobody else has, get a fucking hypnic jerk taillight. Super dope, made by hand in Australia. Support that man. Next up, we've got B3, a.k.a. Babes Bikes and Beards. Amy Lynn Arrington and Chris Pizzo holding it down out in the Chelsea, Massachusetts area. I know it's cold right now and you can't imagine there being a bike night, but eventually when things get warmer, that's where you're going to want to be. B3 Bike Nights, head on over to Babes Bikes Beards on Instagram. Join their Slack team so you could stay up to date on what kind of cool shit is coming this summer. They're very organized people. And if I know you lowlifes like I think I do, you are not. So, <laughs> head on over there and let these girls help you out. Next up, we got Deadbeat Customs out of Tewksbury, Mass. Steve holding it down out there with the 
dopest brick and mortar shop. If you haven't been by, check out the shop. Hit him up to let you know. You're, let him know you're coming. Try on a pair of gloves. He's got bison leather gloves that are fucking dope. Loctite's got a pair. Dope. Love them. Sweet gloves. Try on a jacket. Try on a helmet. It's so nice to have somebody actually stocking this stuff so you can find out what size you are. Get on over there. Support Steve. Support Deadbeat Customs. The ones who put on the Deadbeat Retreat. The dopest motorcycle show in the Northeast. And don't forget the discount code LOWLIFE. When yes. you're at the checkout. Very true. Next up, we got Loctite's Chop Shop. Boo! A.K.A. the fucking Unicorn Ranch. Coming Solid straight picks. out of Epping motherfucking New Hampshire. Um, so, as of right now, we do maintenance, <laughs> uh, motor builds, full builds, um, custom fabrication shit, and if anything big... Then we send it over to fucking Ferro Fabrication. So, either way, anything you need, <laughs> no job, too small or too big, this we got true. you. Love it. And then last but not least, we got Ferro Fabrication. As you might have seen from the pictures earlier tonight, knocking out a quick tank for the homie Clayton Cotton, throwing in a little beer holder into that tank for one of Fat Man's Just the Essentials situations going on in that thing. So, tank jobs, hardtails, handlebars, furniture, whatever the fuck you can think (laughs) of. Small things, big things, repairing things, all up my alley. Love that shit. Obviously, we work hand in hand, Loctite and I. So, hit us up. If there's something you need built, we can build it. And with that, I think we are ready to close this one out. I already did mine, but we need yours. God. What do you got for these people? It's weird when they're separate. I know. (sighs) It's Friday, motherfuckers. If you're sick of sitting at home like a lame ass, jerking off to animal porn, come to the Greasy Dozen Run and have some motherfucking fun.
nothing but mammals So let's do it like they do on the Discovery Channel Channel.